thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, the world's only international Old Republic-specific Star Wars podcast. See, now we have a brand. Last time we brushed up on galactic geography, got in some good legal work during Ulick's trial, and discussed Exar Kun's flair for the dramatic. Now, in episode 10, the Great Sith War ends with the complete annihilation of two planets, and we maybe finally reach the beginning of the Knights of the Old Republic meta-series. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. We're going to start this week with a listener question. At Skymaller on Twitter says, Just listen to the first episode, hoping to get through the rest of the weekend, but love the focus on this era. It's my favorite. With rumors of Old Republic films abounding, what elements from the Legends iteration would you want carried over? What do you hope they don't? First, thank you for writing. We're glad you're listening and enjoying. Yeah, so we had um, so we had a whole like response planned out, and then Kathleen Kennedy decided to actually talk about it. So um, there's a lot of valid- validity to those rumors about canon um, Old Republic content being discussed being somewhere in the pipeline at Disney. Um, so we discussed a bit more of that news back on episode nine. Um, as for the, the specific rumors, um, they've reported that Game of Thrones showrunners D.B. Weiss and David Benny- Benioff will be producing a series of movies set in the Old Republic timeline. Um, it's still rumor and speculation, but with uh, Kathleen Kennedy directly addressing KOTOR content after the uh, Star Wars celebration, it seems much more real than it ever has. Um, so, uh, Luke, what do you hope they... Uh, they carry over, and what do you want them to not carry over from from canon to new canon? Um, I mean, I'll be honest. We uh, we could and uh, and probably will at some point do an entire episode uh, just on this. Um, but uh, specifically, I'd say um, <clears throat> I uh, I just I want it to feel like an like like an old republic um and as we go through it i i hope um we'll be able to convey what i'm saying because tales of the jedi and the knights of the old republic games in in the comic do a re do do a good job of showing like an older an older time and it it seems older things look different the technology is i mean obviously the technology in star wars doesn't like jump light years very much but uh you know it's still a little different um but uh but but then with like the old republic mmo it it looks very um it looks very close to very modern and very close to, to the prequels era stuff. And I mean, I get that they were doing a lot of that because they were trying to sell a game and, and that's fine. But if we're talking about what I want them to make canon again, I, I want it to, to feel old. And I mean, I don't know. 
that's that's the only way I know how to say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, Kelsey, what, what what about you? So I think the most, I think one of the things that makes Star Wars just especially compelling, and the Old Republic is a big part of that, um, is that it is explicitly sci-fi with a past, um, and with a past that's totally divorced from from our world, which is really neat the depths you can go to and the ways you can do that. And I think um, one of the things that felt frustrating about about the the way the prequels handled the past versus how like um, the games and the comics handled the past is that it presented we were, were given we are introduced to the universe with like this this sort of grit and worn down quality and then we see a shining vision of how everything was and there's like what 30 years there's not a ton of time between yeah. those two states so how did everything get so grimy so fast that's not a problem for the old republic um what is neat though is i really want to see the world feel um lived in and also i want it to feel um related to but fundamentally different from how we see the uh the cinematic star wars so far if we can see um like sith cults if we see um force users that are um, outside of the Jedi. They just sort of have this ability to tap into this thing and then don't know what they're doing with it. I think the messiness of that and then the the Jedi and the Sith is both response to how is this energy going to be contained and handled um, is really interesting. And I just want to see societies that move away from the sort of patterns we've been set in in film. I want to see... conflicts even that are like a smaller scale like what about a planet to another planet versus like galactic wide civil wars or things um but also that like you can see vast power emerge from them and get to weird places um Mm -hmm. there's a lot to mine and i think if they can make it feel like it's part of the same universe and operates on the same logic but the response is very different we'll get to an interesting depth Yeah, it, you know, it's it's funny and and I think um you might have uh, unknowingly just just now um <clears throat> excuse me, you might have just described one of the uh the, the plot points of um an expansion to uh the old Republic MMO where the Jedi and the Sith have fought a civil war and the galaxy is, is split along those lines. And then a third entity comes in from the unknown region and just sacks them both. Um, and it, they have their own force users and, and we'll talk about them and they're and um, it's called the eternal empire. They're uh, they're from a planet called Zakul and, and we'll talk about all that. And, and then you're talking about the planet to planet stuff. And, and a lot of that comes from the, uh, or not comes from, but is to me reminiscent of, uh, the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Um, so I, uh, I think it's, um, it's, it's really, it's really funny and also really cool that, you know, you're, um, describing these plot points, um, generally that we're going to discuss, but also as, you know, the, these are things that I would want to see in, 
in in a movie or or you know in canon content in the future and you know i i think that's uh you know that's that's pretty cool and also shows you that there is definitely that stuff there to to uh take for people who haven't even um seen it in the old republic who 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 haven't um read or played the old republic content yet so yeah that's a long way to say that I think you did a good job of predicting something uh, <laughs> without knowing it. Yeah. Exciting. So is there anything, uh, Luke, that you want to, um, you hope doesn't get brought into this that we've already seen and like how um, the old Republic's been written about that you would want them to like maybe steer clear of? Um, <clears throat> I don't want it to turn into a soap opera like <laughs> <laughs> the old republic mmo um uh, <laughs> um I, the the power creep there i mean and the all of the eu has ridiculous power creep and and what i mean is uh where the enemies and therefore also the heroes continue to get more and more and more powerful from the stuff we've already seen, you know? Um, and I, I think <clears throat> some of that is inevitable, but at the same time, you've got a lot or not a lot, but you've got some characters that we'll come across and we'll talk about who definitely feel way, way, way more powerful than even someone like Palpatine or Vader. And, to me, that seems out of place. So, um, anything for you so far? <laughs> I just, um, it's less about like old republics upbringing over and more just the uh, the track record record of a DB Weiss and a Benioff. But I want to make sure um, that the the characters they create and populate the universe with have agency. Um, which is a big thing in yes. Old Republic, and we see um, we see changes, we see emotions, we see lots of choices and agency rather than like victims of circumstances or uh, props. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's my only has. has yes. I, I I completely agree uh, <laughs> with that substantive complaint and criticism of uh, of Weiss and Benioff, but hopefully they've learned from their uh, mistakes, but for, they've learned from their mistakes on uh, Game of Thrones. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> back to the Old Republic. Tales of the Jedi, The Sith War, written by Kevin J. Anderson, 1995 to 1996, a six-issue comic arc. We're picking back up with... Nomi, Vima, and Silvar taking a mental break from all the things that are going on in the galaxy to visit Thawne on Ambria. It's a place of reflection for Nomi and Silvar is looking for guidance, having just lost her master. Unfortunately, the Sith acolytes, Os, Willem, and Kratos arrive and attempt to complete Exarchun's order to kill Master Thawne. Os is possessed by the dark side. Kratos is not possessed. 
He just really sucks. Oss uses Sith magic to wake the lizard beast from the dark side bog. The same ones Nomi saved Vima from in the saga in the saga of Nomi Sunrider. Except now there are more and Oss is controlling them. And Kratos specifically tells them all must die. Even Silvar. The creatures attack, but the Jedi repel and soon find the culprits behind the attack. Thon is disgusted with himself at his failing as a master and knocks Oss unconscious, which seems to release him from the Sith possession. Kratos, clearly under no possession, doesn't think Silvar will harm him, but she's furious for his betrayal and helping Exarkun, who got Master Voto killed. She uses her claws to slash him across the cheek, just like she did to Kuhn, and then he flees in his ship, nursing his wound. Thon, Nomi, Silvar, and Vima retreat with a dazed and confused Oss, and Thon senses a plot against more masters, hoping they're safe. They are not. Exar Kuhn's Sith acolytes are able to pull off their master's plans largely unscathed, killing at least six unidentified Jedi Masters in what is described as the Jedi Pogrom. One Sith acolyte, the recently named Zona Luca, successfully killed her master Dominus on Asus, though she was also slain. Including Master Vodo, that means the Brotherhood of Sith killed at least eight Jedi Masters in short order, while losing only two of their own. Happening upon Zona Luca's body and Master Dominus's robes, our fearless Jedi redshirts finally get something to do. Shunab Kulu, Dace Vyath, and Kroll Tok vow to put an end to this Sith threat at the next opportunity. Elsewhere, Kratos retreats to Yavin 4 and reports their failure to kill Thon, as well as Os Willem's capture to Exarkun. The Dark Lord seems unfazed by the news, shrugging it off, but Kratos begs forgiveness and a chance at atonement with Kun, giving him battle command under Alima who will lead the next mission to attack Pemplex 9. Again? Now the double feint is back on, and those pages about the Mandalorians attacking the Kemplex station are in doubt. The Corsair will jump from Yavin 4 to attack the Kemplex station. The, Repub- the Republic fleet will respond to protect Complex 9 despite the earlier fake-out because it's a heavily populated hyperspace jump station in the same sector as Asus. Alima and Kratos will lie in wait to decimate the Republic fleet with an ancient Sith weapon. They will use Naga Sedel's old flagship, the Corsair, which which holds powerful Sith weapons and artifacts as the mechanism to destroy the Republic ships. Mandalore is confused by, confused by and furious with Ulic. His position is understandable. He's Ulic's first commander, is largely responsible for Ulic being alive now after retrieving Exarkun, and wishes to lead the Mandalorians into battle, as is their custom. However, Ulic assures Mandalore that this is no slight, but a carefully calculated plan to destroy their enemies both inside and out. Ulic and Exar both stand to benefit from this deal. While Alima has betrayed Ulic and cost the group galactic power, Krato has also become a liability to Exar Kun. He's trusting to a fault, and his over-eager attitude is making him weak and a nuisance to the Brotherhood of the Sith. 
the Dark Lords seem to have a solution to both their problems and the attack on Kimblex 9. So some more background on the Great Seth War. If you've been run- wondering what the massive fleet and army Ulik Kaldroma amassed has been doing while he, Mandalore, and Exar Kun took a business trip to Korshan, wonder no longer. It was never stated in the comics due to size and time constraints, but later reference books like The Essential Atlas and Essential Guide to Warfare fleshed the Sith-Krath Mandalorian Alliance plans out extensively. After retreating from Coruscant following Ulik's betrayal and capture, the Krath cut a bloody swath across the area known as the Slice. It is a large wedge-shaped region that begins just galactic east of Corellia and reaches to the Outer Rim, as far south as Tatooine and as far north as Ossus and Mon Calamari. This cut the region in half, securing more than 10 systems, including Bathaui and Rodia. The main craft attack across the slice also cut the Republic off from key rim worlds rich in resources and supplies. Additionally, the part of the craft fleet that left Coruscant fought several successful battles fleeing northeast across the Perelmian trade route, one of the largest hyperspace routes in the galaxy, before being aided by Mandalorian forces heading south at Geyser. They then rendezvoused with Alima and Credo in the Kron system just before the Republic counterattack. The Mandalorian forces that had not been on Kuar, meanwhile, struck out from Mandalore in two directions. One group headed Galactic West, attacking Iridonia, but was utterly annihilated by a joint Republic-Jedi military force. The First Battle of Iridonia appears to mark the first known defeat of the Mandalorian forces in open battle, at least that we know of. The second group went south, conquering and occupying a number of systems, including Onderon and Nasri, the home of Kurltok. Essentially, the Krath and Mandalorian fleets occupied the Republic and Jedi forces in outlying systems, freeing Kuhn and Keldroma to go about their business. This also means that the combined fighting killed billions. If the geography and military movement is confusing, that's totally understandable. Check the show descriptions for maps of the galaxy and geographic boundaries. We will leave those linked each time and a map of fleet and troop movements for the current conflict we are discussing, if one exists, Um, just just so it's easier for you to picture. Uh, Additionally, the Republic faced numerous threats around the time of Ulik's fall to the dark side beside the new uh, Sith-Krath-Mandalorian alliance. The Mercosa Order, a dark side cult of assassins and a later Sith cult, rose up and took power in the Tapani sector, which allowed them to blockade hyperspace and trade routes south of the core. The Jedi and Republic could not deal with them until the end of the war. The Krath also used this time to enter into a non-aggression pact with the Huts, which is kind of helpful. So back to the Sith War. Exar Kun shows Alima how to use Naga Sadao's flagship, the Corsair, before they take off from Yavin 4. Alima is ready to test the power in the old Sith weapons that she can feel radiating from the controls. Kun tells her the ship can rip the core from a star, creating a supernova, which he can direct at the pursuing Republic fleet. That super, that super weapon number four, for those counting along at home, 
And it's very similar to the Naga Sadao, the one Naga Sadao would use to trick Gav Daragon a thousand years earlier. Before departing, Alima shares one last cold embrace with Ulik, who reassures her that all is well, while Kratos claims he won't fail Exarkun again. Many Jedi, meanwhile, have gathered on Ossus to plot the defeat of the Sith. Their discussions are interrupted by news of Alima's attack on Complex 9. Master Thawne is rightly skeptical, seeing another Sith faint as an attempt by Kun to get his hands on the many Jedi secrets locked on Ossus. However, Ossus is the only occupied planet close enough to help this nation, and the Jedi cannot ignore possible Sith activity in the Deaths of Innocence, so they send a counterattack. Fresh off finding Master Dominus dead at the hands of his own apprentice, Krotok, Shonab Kulu, and Dace Diat volunteer to lead the small Ossus counterattack in the larger Republic, force jumping to Complex 9 from other sectors. Complex 9 is a bustling is a bustling city in space, the only inhabited part of the Kron system. It was apparently never hit by the Mandalorians, and those pages from earlier seem to be a misnomer. Like the Ossus jump station we described as an intergalactic truck stop, many travelers would still be using this station to rest and refuel or to live and work. However, after Alima and Kratos attacked the station, it was left lifeless and broken, with all beings on board having been killed. After finishing the task, they took the Corsair to hide within the Kron Cluster. An unstable mass of ten stars clustered tightly together in the center of the Kron system. If you can see where this go, this is going, you're, you're way ahead of the game. The Jedi arrived too late to save the station, but they traced the Corsair's ion trail to the cluster and prepared to attack with their Republic allies arriving soon after. The Corsair didn't return fire. Instead, Alima powered up her weapon, and just then, Shoaneb could see ripples in the force and feel the coming disturbance. She's always three seconds ahead of the game. Alima activated the Corsair's super weapon and ripped one of the cores from a star in the Kron Cluster and focused it against their enemies. In an instant, our Jedi redshirts, Karl Took, Shoaneb, and Dace are obliterated by the supernova along with the entire Republic fleet that aided the counterattack. That's not the entire Republic fleet, but all of the... You get it. So, Job, well done, Alima and Kratos. Thanks for your service. That was far too simple, right? And you've been wondering during the entirety of the Sith War why the Sith would be so concerned with attacking an outdated hyperspace jump station in the Outer Rim except as a diversionary tactic. That's because you're paying attention, unlike Alima and Kratos. For you see, even though Phase 1 resulted in zero craft casualties, Exar Kun and Ulit Keldroma neglected to inform Alima and Kratos that there was even a second phase of the operation. Immediately after the deaths of the Jedi and Republic forces, the Corsair prepares to jump to Yavin 4, but it cannot. Though Alima deactivated the Sith's superweapon, the chain reaction had already begun, and she and Kratos know something is amiss. They had assumed the Corsair would be protected from the supernova, but you know what happens when you assume. By ripping the core from one star in the Kron Cluster, Alima set up a chain reaction, causing the other nine stars to supernova as well initiating phase two. 
Gravity implodes in one, then another, and so on. Each star's destructive power is at least ten times over as they waves of radiation and heat from one slam into the other nine tightly packed star-sized fission bombs going nuclear at once. The blasts push in the only direction they have, outward, vaporizing everything in the Kron system. As their deaths and the Corsair's destruction become imminent, Alima realizes at last that Ulick learned of her betrayal and sent her to die. Kredo, meanwhile, dies asking why Exar Kun would do this to him and receiving no explanation. Though useful to the Dark Lords, the deaths of Alima and Kredo are not the point of Phase 2. It was never about Complex 9 or anything else. It was always about Ossus. By now, the chain reaction of supernova in the cluster has caused a solar inferno moving outward from the Kron system. Described as the most devastating solar event in galactic history, the chain reaction is so hot that it will destroy or render lifeless any planet in its path, including its neighbor in the Aral section, Aral sector, Ossus. The Jedi will have little time to evacuate their knowledge, the residents of the world, and themselves before the solar wave hits them. Exar Kun and Ulic Kaldromo will use this time of mass confusion to raid the great Jedi library world of its treasures. At this time in galactic history, Asus is the main Jedi world serving as their base of operations and home in 3996, much as Coruscant did during the prequel trilogy. It would not be for much longer. The Battle of Asus is the turning point for the Jedi and Republic in the Great Sith War, but the cost will be great. The scouring of Asus by the supernova chain reaction will leave it mostly a lifeless tomb, largely devoid of visitors for thousands of years until its rediscovery by the New Jedi Order in 10 ABY, it's after the Battle of Yavin. Uh, picking up our story, the Jedi hear of the impending cleansing of Asus by heavenly fire and order a planetary evacuation. Predictably, this turns into utter chaos. Nomi, K, Thon, Vima, Silvar, Tot, a non-possessed Os Willem, Ud Benar, and countless other Jedi begin removing the knowledge, priceless artifacts, and sentient beings from Ossus. It is literally an impossible task, however, as Tot notes, they could not save all the treasures of Ossus given an entire year, and they have mere hours. All of the all of these problems and the situation are about to get much worse for the Jedi, however. Much of the Mandalorian fleet entered the system, including the Mandalore, and it was dispatched to Onderon to conquer and hold the planet. However, the remaining Mandalorians entered the system and then immediately targeted Ossus under orders from Ulic. In the midst of a worldwide evacuation, the Jedi are now also under attack. When the fleet began its barrage, the Battle of Ossus was finally vested. However, like so many others before it, the attack is another Sith ruse. This time, the Mandalorians draw enough attention to allow Exar Kun and Ulic Kaldroma to slip by the planetary shields and defense systems unnoticed before splitting up on their separate missions. Seeing the attack, the Jedi on the ground grow despondent. As they see the world will either be looted or destroyed, most likely both, and make to escape. But Kay and Nomi get the surprise when they sense Ulick through the Force and Kay rushes to his ship to flag his brother down from the skies. Kay and Ulick talk via comlink in the skies over Asus, but Ulick attempts to evade his brother, not wanting a battle. 
Kane knows they need a heart-to-heart and shoots out his brother's engines, enraging Ulick and drawing fire from nearby Mandalorians. As both Ulick and his allies fire on Kay, his ship crashes on Ossus. Kuhn had immediately landed and set out to find Master Udbinar, as he was known to keep many artifacts. Master Ud, Master Ud was attempting to preserve some of the first cordless Jedi lightsabers when Kuhn burst in. Yes, I said cordless. They used to have corded power packs, uh, if you, you don't remember. Unable to match Kuhn's skill with the lightsaber and outnumbered by his Masasi warriors, Master Udbinar decided to protect his treasures for all time. Calling on the Neti power to take root and enhancing that ability with the Force, Master Ud transformed into a tree and let out a powerful blast of Force energy as a ward against his enemies. Ud would stay rooted to that spot for all of history, his lightsaber still ignited for a time. Exarkun bemoaned the loss, but only momentarily, as the Masasi were loading his ship with armfuls of stolen artifacts. Before he could depart, Savar attempted to confront and kill Kuhn for his crimes, and she's not even aware of Kratos' death yet. Exar Kuhn leaves, leaves her to fight with the Masasi as she rages at them while he boards his ship bound for Yavin 4 to review his spoils of war. He leaves Ulik to fend for himself. The planet seems to be largely evacuated, but the Mandalorians begin targeting fleeing civilian craft, and the deadly, deadly solar wave is only getting closer to Asus by the moment. Nomi and Ta assist Thon and Vima to an escape craft, but they see Kay's ship going down and run towards the crash site. Kay barely survived the landing, but Ulik didn't fare much better, his Sith wound bleeding again. Ulik's lightsaber is already drawn, and Kay is reluctant to fight, but eventually says he must save Ulik from himself and the dark side, and then ignites his lightsaber. Kay is in tears, parrying Ulik's attacks. He seems to know what's coming. He begs his brother to let go of the anger surrounding Arka's death and to focus through the Sith poison. Kay says Ulik could have done nothing to help Arka, and that falling to the dark side only makes his sacrifice worthless. At this point, Ulik has had enough of Kay's harsh truth. His rage is uncontrollable. He screams at Kay to be quiet and severs his brother's droid arm. It's three arms that Kay has now lost. Kay cowers before Ulik, telling him he did this because he loves his big brother, but Ulik has one last fit of dark side rage left in him, screaming that Kay should have left him alone and slashing Kay across the chest, killing him instantly. Nomi and Ta arrive just as Ulik murders his brother. By seeing his brother's death at his own hands, it caused Ulik to realize what he had done and feel immediate regret, weeping and clutching Kay's body in his arms. Nomi arrives and seeing her former lover kill her best friend is too much to bear. Using the Force, she creates a wall of light, blinding Ulik to the Force, just as Master Odin Urus had taught her. But in her anger, grief, and rage... Nomi lost control of her power, or perhaps didn't fully understand it to begin with, and permanently blinded Ulik to the Force. Taught, fearing that this is a grievous overstepping of the Jedi Code, and also seeing that Nomi had lost control, tried to stop her before it was too late, but he, he didn't get there in time. 
Nomi has appalled herself, having misused the Force, and knows of no way to undo her mistake. Ulick, still holding Kay, has just lost one of his senses permanently and is reeling. Other Jedi who are supposed to have fled soon arrive on the scene. Even Thawne, who had long who long ago believed Ulick chose to follow the dark path, sees his permanent blinding to the Force as a tragedy, with Nomi agreeing that she lost control of herself and did it in anger. Ulick is pitiful and broken. Y- you you really feel sorry for him, despite all of the things he's done. It's they 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 view it as like. Uh, um, I, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. Just they, like it, this is a, a violation of 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 Ulick personally. Um, but uh, he's comforted by Os Willem, who was a brief servant of the dark and knows he must begin to make things right if he can. Ulick, having come back to the light after killing Kay, gives up Exar Kun's secret base on Yavin 4, and the Jedi prepare to make a final assault against the Dark Lord. The remaining Jedi on Asus head for the ships, but Thawne makes one final visit to Master Ud Benar and says his goodbyes to his very old friend. After they escape, we see the solar cataclysm scour Asus of all life, and though Ud's transformation was badly burned and scorched, he had retreated to a deep meditation within the Force where he would stay until his discovery by Luke Skywalker and Tion Sulasar in 10 ABY, then becoming one with the Force. By that time, he had lived well over 4,000 years. The Mandalorians that Ulick sent to conquer Alderaan have arrived. And they don't get too much of a head start because Oran Kira's Beast Warriors are always on high alert due to Duxun's closed passage and the shared atmosphere every season. Mandalore the Indomitable leads his warriors to the battle aboard their flying basilisk war droids, but finds the Beast Warriors are no pushovers. The flying Drexel equipped with guns is a match for the flying war droid and a bloody fight ensues that sees the Mandalorians eventually take the upper hand. But Queen Galea had radioed for Republic backup a few minutes ago, and General Vicinus arrives with his fleet just in time. He broadcasts a demand to sur- of surrender to the Mandalore and tells him of Ulick's defeat, though the Mandalorians vow to fight to the death. And they would have, but the Mandalorian fleet was crushed by the, surpri- by the surprise and with his invasion failing, Mandalore ordered a retreat to Duxun. They are split into legions and lose the Republic in the jungle wilds of the Devil Moon. Many Mandalorians die in the retreat with the Republic, more than happy to let the moon creatures take care of the rest. During pursuit, Mandalore the Indomitable's mount was damaged and he made an emergency landing in a remote area of Duxun. Though he battled fiercely trying to return to his troops, the beasts were too many and he was killed. The Mandalorians initiated a full-scale search of the moon to find their leader with one tongue eventually finding the Mandalore's body. This tongue took the mask of the Mandalore and wore it, proclaiming himself the new leader. He would later become known as Mandalore the Ultimate, one of the most infamous figures in the galaxy in the coming years. At this point in the story, the Essential Atlas, Essential Guide to Warfare, and KOTOR comic provide greater detail about the Republic's counteroffensive. 
After Alima's death and Ulik's surrender, the Krath still fought, or what was left of their fleet still fought, but were defeated by the Corellian fleet at New Cove, and its remnants limped back to hut space. The remaining fleet was docked at Bunta long enough to see the Republic swift fleet arrive. The Republic spared nothing in its way and annihilated the remaining craft fleet. The hut fleet docked there and left the planet formerly known as Kovari, a depopulated husk. For all intents and purposes, this is the end of, of the craft cult in the galaxy. After defeating the Krath, the Corellian fleet helped the Republic free the Topani sector from the Mercosa Order, who had ruled it since around the time of Uluk's fall. We also learn that the Jedi and Republic fought a fierce battle against the Sith at Toprawa, very near the end of the war. Though the Jedi won the battle, many knights were slain in the process, including Barristan Dre. The species... The specifics and aftermath of this battle have far more to do with the KOTOR comic and will be discussed in more depth there. With that, the Jedi and Republic's long list of enemies dwindled considerably. The Krath were utterly defeated at Bunta, never to haunt the galaxy again. The Mandalorians were scattered and defeated on Dixun. They wouldn't be a problem for another 20 years. And then there was one. The Jedi, for once have wasted no time with Nomi and Thon signaling all of them to descend on Yavin 4 to root out Exar Kun. Thousands arrive to add their strength to a wall of light that will either cleanse or destroy. Ulik makes the call to his former master, telling him that the Jedi have come to end his reign. We also get to see Master Thon and his starship for the first time, and he looks terribly uncomfortable. But I guess they don't particularly make starships roomy for Triceratops. Exar Kun, despite all his power and vanity, knows that he cannot fight off that many Jedi, but also doesn't want to die. So he consults his accumulated Jedi and Sith knowledge and finds a means to survive. The ritual will destroy the body but preserve Kun's spirit and, he believes, allow his spirit to roam the cosmos, living forever. Needing an enormous sacrifice to power the process, Exar Kun calls every last Masasi left on Yavin 4 to the Great Sith Temple. Though he doesn't fully understand it, Kun starts the ritual, and the immense dark side power begins to build, killing his body but successfully preserving his spirit. However, the combined might of the Jedi is focused on the Great Sith Temple, intending to contain Exar Kun similarly uh, to Nomi's punishment of Ulig. The Jedi are unaware of Kun's ritual, and their combined use of the Force produces a powerful beam of light side energy that collides with Kun's dark side energy, sparking a firestorm that cannot be quenched. The fire spread quickly and eventually burned the largely jungle planet to ash, leaving, sorry, erasing all traces of Exar Kun's Sith heritage. It left only the Masasi temples and the fertile soil to regrow the jungles later. Unaware of Exar Kun's Sith ritual and sacrifice, the Jedi are immediately horrified with themselves, believing that they were fully responsible for the carnage that befell Yavin 4. While they had completed their primary objective of eliminating Exar Kun, they also rendered an entire world lifeless and uh, committed genocide against the Masasi species in the process. Unable to quench the flames or sit idly by and witness any further destruction, the Jedi retreated to help rebuild a broken galaxy and order. Epilogue 
Two years after the war's end in 3994 BBY, Ulick Keldroma flies his newly christened starship Kay's Dream to Yavin 4. Interestingly, or perhaps not, Kay was buried and did not disappear into the force upon his death. Ulick needed to see the destruction that he and Exar Kun had wrought to fully comprehend everything that had occurred and to see if he could feel anything there. Ulick has... Ulrich has spent the past two years searching the galaxy for a way to reconnect to the Force, but now seems to understand that this is impossible. Seeing the devastation but unable to feel anything, Keldroma departs to wander the stars for another eight years before we see him again. Exar Kun is on, is on Yavin 4, though. His spirit survived but is trapped in some dark purgatory of the Force on the planet. The final page shows Kuhn's cries for his former apprentice. He's surrounded by darkness, begging Ulick to answer, and doesn't understand why he won't. Exar is lonely and scared, trapped in a dark prison of his own making. Thus ends, thus ends the tales of the Jedi, the Sith War, but not our knowledge of the Great Sith War. They, they should really... They should really name these things better. <sighs> Though the Jedi believe they were solely responsible for the genocide on Yavin 4, we know the small number of Masasi did survive both Exar Kun's Sith ritual and the Firestorm to propagate their species until much, much later in galactic history. At least some members of the Brotherhood of the Sith died on the Jungle Moon as well, specifically a human woman named Nayama, who plays an important role for one of Revan's companions in Knights of the Old Republic. And of course, Exar Kun's spirit survived for thousands of years, corrupting beings from time to time before he finally possessed Kip Duran and used the Sun Crusher. After killing millions with the superweapon in 11 ABY, Kuhn's spirit was destroyed forever by the combined efforts of Luke Skywalker, his new Jedi Order, and the Force Ghost of Exar's old master, Voto Siosk Boss. Koran, Koran Horn then proton torpedoed Kuhn's temple from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. So close to Canon Alert 2. The bass relief from Palpatine's office was the first one of these alerts. See? We can retcon a podcast, too. As we briefly alluded to in episode four, Exar Kun was nearly made canon via reference in the film Solo. The Art of Solo book shows a number of behind-the-scenes shots and concept art for the film, explaining a little bit about each piece. One early design shows Dryden Voss's desk made of a stone taken from Exar Kun's temple, the background would have been explained in the Solo Visual, Di Visual Dictionary, like the Old Republic Mandalorian armor, but it would have canonized Exar Kun. Sadly, the design was cut, but this is an example of Star Wars being on the cusp of, cusp of bringing back an old favorite character. The Great Sith War lasted from 4000 to 3996 BBY, and was said to have devastated almost one quarter of all the civilized worlds in the Republic. Specifically, we saw that the Sith Krath Mandalorian Alliance was responsible for depopulating and or completely destroying the worlds of Ossus, Quar, the inhabited Forrest Orbital Shipyards, the inhabited Complex 9 Station, 
and of course cauterizing the entire aural sector after causing a supernova chain reaction in the Kron cluster. The Republic Jedi forces were responsible for leaving Bunta a lifeless rock and scouring Yavin 4 of nearly all life by a fire. The Sith Craft Mandalorian Alliance also killed thousands of civilians on Raxus Prime, Coruscant, Ossus, Eridonia, Onderon, Toprawa, and the worlds of the Empress Tita sector and many others. The war also saw the Sith utilize two superweapons in the Dark Reaper and Naga Sadao's flagship, the Corsair. Somehow, the legacy of the Great Sith War would come to overshadow its many casualties. The Sith were largely wiped out as a major threat, but members of the Brotherhood of Sith were known to survive to spread dark side teachings, as did the Sith settlements on Corbin. Likewise, the Eternal Emperor Valkorion is at large in the unknown regions building his own Sith Empire during this time. The Jedi, on the other hand, were pulled in too many directions by the end of the war. The destruction of Ossus caused the Order to consolidate their power and training at Coruscant as the home of the Order. The Jedi Temple there grew much larger through this change, but this would also begin the Supreme Chancellor's political meddling in Jedi affairs. Due to pressure from the Senate, the Jedi predominantly worked to rebuild many devastated worlds, which is very noble. But due to their constrained numbers and the losses during the war, they were unable to fully root out the Sith, allowing the Dark Side teachers to continue to fester across the galaxy. The largest change, however, was the movement towards centralization and uniformity for the Order. We have discussed the highly decentralized Jedi Order of this era a couple of times, but the differences are quite stark. The Jedi of the Old Republic were spread far across the galaxy, with masters establishing training centers on worlds of their choosing and training many apprentices at once. The Order saw no issue with marriage, sex, or many of the other formalities that were strictly followed by the Jedi Order of the prequel era. The Great Sith War, and especially the genocide on Yavin 4, would change all that. Appalled by their actions and failures, the new Jedi High Council convened on Coruscant and determined that Jedi Masters and Watchmen were to be held accountable and to higher standards. This meant more standardization and training and fewer outlying councils and training centers outside the main one on Coruscant, though they still existed. This decision is what would, of course, eventually lead to the full consolidation of the order on Coruscant by the time of prequels. The new changes also included more rigidity to certain rules, such as those forbidding attachments. Many Jedi vehemently opposed these changes, viewing them as anathema to the part of the Jedi Code that says a Jedi should not rule over another being, even other Jedi, and that Jedi should embrace love. This would be an ongoing issue for thousands of years, not resolved, not fully resolved until the aftermath of the seventh and final Battle of Rusan and 1000 BBY. Of course, in reality, these stories were an attempt to mesh two disparate Jedi orders. The one discussed in the original trilogy, which was fleshed out in the EU from 1977 to 1998 as a decentralized order of warrior monks free to follow the force largely unbound by rules, and the highly stayed rules-based order of galactic cops presented in the prequel trilogy. Because Knights of the Old Republic was released after Attack of the Clones, but before Revenge of the Sith, it was one of the first EU works to grapple with this concept, 
And so we will discuss it in greater detail there, just like we will everything, because everything depends on Knights of the Old Republic. Finally, number of Jedi update. In 3996 BBY, at the end of the Great Sith War, there are still thousands of Jedi throughout the galaxy, though we, though we do know their numbers have dwindled due to the war. The few surviving members of the Brotherhood of Sith are scattered and leaderless. Exarchoon's spirit is trapped in torment on Yavin 4, and the Sith Emperor still grows his influence in secret in the Unknown Regions. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, Tales of the Jedi ends, and we will move fully into the uh, Knights of the Old Republic comic and the Mandalorian Wars. Please rate comment and subscribe to people's history of the old republic on apple google or wherever you listen to podcasts thank you for the five star ratings on itunes ratings and comments really help the show and we appreciate them follow us on twitter at photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show i'm atherton katie on twitter i'm lucas amazing on twitter thank you again for listening And may the Force be with you.